previously on Demon Forces. Talbot ran into some early problems. Uh, and, and, problems and, and, with who? With the United States. Why? Um, <clears throat> Talbot broke what appeared to have been a long, outstanding red line that he crossed. Talbot was, uh, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union had a few embassies around Africa, and it was almost uh, a sin uh, for Liberia, uh, the principal almost, and we assumed as being the principal ally of the United States in Africa, to open a Soviet embassy in Monrovia. Talbot did that. And that, I think, is the straw that broke the camel's back. What do you mean? Well, not long after that, he was killed. What are you suggesting then, Mr. Taylor? Well, I, I, I do not want to speculate. I, 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 just, I can just give you the progression. Tarba opens the Soviet embassy. It is disliked by a lot of people, including the United States, and rightly so, I want to believe, because of the close, uh, the close relationship. And, and if I can, can deal with that close relationship, uh, you mentioned before in your question the issue of VOA. There are long-standing ties between the United States and Liberia. Liberia is supposed to be America's little child. So any, the Soviet embassy is serious, but you got all these security posts. You have the VOA. The VOA is a radio station, but it's a relay station. And we know is what? The voice, of, the voice of America is a radio uh, outfit that was used to relay radio communication across the world. But like the BBC, these are all propaganda radio stations. That is in Liberia. There's another very important uh, security situation at the time. The other thing that is there. Uh, Liberia is, I think, the only country on the African continent that is uh, hosting the uh, Omega, that's O-M-E-G-A, the Omega Towers. Now, what is the Omega Tower? Prior to these satellites that are, the spy satellites that are launched into space that are used for navigation and other military purposes, the Omega Towers uh, were about three or not more than four across the world. These are very high, high towers. They are high security towers that were used uh, as guiding systems for uh, United States uh, uh, submarines and ships at sea. Very strategic. So Liberia became strategic to the United States in terms of uh, the VOA broadcasts. And we now have the Omega Towers. Thirdly, Liberia, from an intelligence perspective, is the center of almost Western intelligence on the African continent. So bringing the Soviet Union during the Cold War into Liberia was detrimental to Taliban. Now, what happens after that? A training program is conducted by the United States where the first special forces are being trained, Samuel Doe, and Samuel Doe is the uh, former president of Liberia that staged the coup d'etat, are amongst the young men that trained through this special program. Immediately, and that was the, the, the best qualified training program that had ever been held in Liberia, 
Less than a month after this particular program, they killed President Tarpa. Now, I'm not in a position to, to make any claim, but I'm just trying to give you the progression of things. The embassy, because of the close, the close relationship between these countries, this special training program, Tarpa gets killed a month later. Is anybody's guess what happened? This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. American Giants who attacked our country. position not Adam and this guy is created from dirt and how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of state and the conspiracy theorists can say what they will but I want you to give me power over Adam and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things people have so much pain and have such a And today, we are finally returning to the third chapter of Demon Forces. Now, for the last few minutes there, you have been listening to the testimony at the International Criminal Court of former Liberian President Charles Ganke Taylor about the violent episode that we covered at the end of Demon Forces 2, the grisly assassination of Liberian President William Tolbert. And as you heard Charles Taylor himself say, and just to say up front, yes, he can be a bit of an unreliable narrator, but from this point on in the story, we're going to be hearing a lot more directly from him. The way he tells it, the death of William Tolbert had all of the characteristics and hallmarks of a U.S. covert operation. So I think as we start, uh, we owe it to the historical record to look through some of the testimonies and accounts of what actually happened on that night in April 1980 when Tolbert was killed. And it turns out it's a lot more people than just Charles Taylor who think that. And right off the bat here, I think in this chapter of Demon Forces and going forward, I have to give a major shout out to the YouTube channel, My Black Planet. They started uploading videos, it seems, late last year. And in another bizarre synchronicity, they started uploading a ton of videos about Liberia, I think just in January of this year, 2022. And I have to say, it is an absolute goldmine of research Uh, because most of it is short segments of various people 
testifying at the Liberian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was something that was eventually established after a long period of civil conflict to kind of uh, clear the record on everything that happened. But a lot of the testimony in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission stretched all the way back to the late 1970s because as we went over in Demon Forces 2, a lot of the young activist figures that were getting very involved in political action in the late 70s, and many of them vehemently opposed to Tolbert, ended up having very prominent roles to play in Liberian politics in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, pretty much to today. The Liberian political sort of elite is mostly comprised these days by people who were involved in some of the events that we are going to get into today, which get quite extreme. But once again, shout out to My Black Planet. They have literally hundreds of videos, and it's a fantastic oral history of various intrigues and things that were happening that you honestly don't get a lot from the mainstream kind of reportage or journalism or books that are written by Western writers about Liberia. The one exception, I would say, being Niels Hahn's Two Centuries of U.S. Military Operations in Liberia, Challenges of Resistance and Compliance, which I have quoted heavily from thus far. I'm going to lean a little less heavily on it going forward because there are other, there are some other books that have really interesting information, but. I think, like I said at the, in the very first episode, most of the other books have problematic kind of framings, I guess, as Khalid would say. Their epistemological and ontological frameworks um, kind of betray a certain Western impulse. I don't think it is always sinister, though it sometimes is, especially the reporting going on at the time. But nonetheless, this story is about to spiral off into a kind of uh, global underground octopus. And we're going to start diving in to a little more of that content today. And we're going to meet some new characters for the first time who are much more than they appear to be on the surface, maybe none more so than Charles Taylor. But before we jump into all that, and also the... At this point, we're in 1980, the new president of Liberia, Samuel Kenyon Doe, we should talk for a minute about the assassination of Tolbert because it is so fucking sus. It is almost, it's on a level of obviousness, I think, for regular listeners of SJ as the Kennedy assassination, as the Bobby Kennedy assassination, as Martin Luther King, it is, uh, or Patrice Lumumba for that matter, it is uh, kind of incredibly obvious. And when you start to go through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission videos, I think My Black Planet has selected, like there must be at least 20 of different witnesses or maybe different witnesses at different times, basically describing their version of what they heard happened. And when you hear them say it themselves, it really cuts through a lot of the bullshit. And it becomes incredibly obvious that this was a U.S. operation. And now, do we know exactly the contours of it? Maybe not in every degree. But to start, I think I'll just read the section here from Niels Hahn's book in chapter four, 
Samuel K. Doe from friend to foe because he talks about the situation immediately following Tolbert's death. And he gives a good overview. And by the way, one of the reasons Niels Hahn's book is, is so good is because it heavily quotes from the testimony of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So it kind of bypasses a lot of, um, I guess you could say, Western filters in terms of uh, f- kind of framing this story and who to trust and who to not trust. Uh, he kind of serves up people who were there, like straight up what they said. And it, it is not... It's actually not so ambiguous from the Liberian perspective. Okay, I'll just read a little here from Han. Immediately after the U.S. Embassy endorsed the coup d'etat, American advisors moved into the executive mansion and assigned advisors to several ministries, including the Ministry of Defense. United States Charge d'Affaires Julius Walker noted that, quote, Doe was scared. He had not really expected to be where he was, and he feared that forces were coming from all corners to attack him, and he wanted America to send him strong support. The head of the U.S. military mission in Liberia, Colonel Robert Gosney, more on him in a minute, deployed U.S. soldiers into the streets of Monrovia to help the PRC, that's the People's Redemption Council of this military coup, uh, restore law and order. The U.S. soldiers, quote, got looters and shooters off the street by disarming them and imprisoning them in the Barclay military compound. There was, quote, so much respect for the American presence there that the soldiers followed the Americans' orders without question. A dusk-to-dawn curfew was imposed, airports and seaports were closed, telephones and telex machines were locked for international communication, and financial transactions restricted. In a speech to the nation on the 14th of April, 1980, Doe justified the coup by emphasizing that the AFL, the Armed Forces of Liberia, had abolished the government because of, quote, corruption on a massive scale, where members of the government represented, quote, big companies when they should be speaking for the people. He stated that, quote, the People's Redemption Council was organized not only to to overthrow the government, but more importantly, to overhaul it. One way to meet needs of the poor people would be through, quote, friendship with foreign investors and to ensure loyalty from the AFL, he promised to increase the minimum salary to $250 a month. So then, not long after this coup, something incredibly shocking happens. Many government officials and security personnel were arrested immediately after the coup, and 35 of these people appeared at a special military tribunal established by the PRC. 13 key government officials from the Tolbert administration were charged with high treason, corruption, and misuse of public office and sentenced to death. On April 22, 1980, 13 officials, six cabinet ministers, and seven other officials were executed by firing squad, viewed by the public. The event was covered internationally on television. U.S. Ambassador Robert P. Smith noted that everyone was aware, quote, that only Frank Tolbert, senator and brother to former President Tolbert, Richard Henry's, deposed Speaker of the House, James Pierre, deposed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and Reginald Townsend, deposed Chairman of the True Whig Party, were to be executed. The PRC added the nine additional people and then destroyed the records of the tribunal. So yes, they took basically the entire Tolbert administration and other political leaders that were just about all of them hailed from the Americo-Liberian elite that we talked about so much in the previous chapters, took them out on the beach, invited international reporters to film it, and then uh, 
a group of, I guess, drunken soldiers uh, shot them hundreds of times and executed them all. So this was a shocking overthrow of the uniparty, true Whig, Americo-Liberian ruling class that probably went, I think, a lot further than most of them ever thought, even if they didn't like Tolbert. And it was all, um, as we're about to see, uh, I think co-signed by the United States. So afterward, after this execution, Doe announced that there would not be any further executions of Tolbert administration officials. And gradually, he released political prisoners, including the Minister of Finance, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who, uh, if you don't know, listeners, would also become president of Liberia decades later. However, and this is something that will have major consequences, in mid-June 1980, A. Benedict Tolbert, the son of deceased President Tolbert, who we profiled in Demon Forces 2, who ascribed to the Ascended Master's teaching of the Great White Brotherhood and was a dynamo of a politician who had a very bright future, he was arrested in June 1980 by the Liberian military inside the French embassy where he had previously been granted political asylum. This resulted in sharp critique from the French government, noting this was a violation of international law. A.B. Tolbert was imprisoned and promised a fair trial. However, a few months later, he disappeared from prison and was killed by the PRC. This resulted in a severe deterioration of the relationship between the PRC and the government of Côte d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, because A.B. Tolbert was married to Daisy Delafosse Tolbert, goddaughter of President Houphoué Boigny. And that is something that would come back to bite Samuel Doe later. Libya and Guinea were among the first states to recognize the new government. In the leftist pan-African environment of Liberia, this was seen as an attempt to get Doe into the socialist-oriented camp and to prevent Liberia from falling back into the hands of the U.S. government. Shortly after the coup, Doe accepted an invitation to Tripoli from Muammar Gaddafi, Libya's leader. However, he canceled the trip because, quote, the Americans sent arms and ammunition and everything needed. According to Doe, he was confused about Libya at that time because he, quote, did not know anything about Gaddafi's policies, but later realized that he was a socialist, and therefore he decided to keep a low profile with him. Later, Gaddafi accused Doe of being pro-American, and the relationship between Doe and Gaddafi became bitter. Toe recalls that he and the other PRC members were not well-educated and Doe only completed high school a few years before he became head of state. This contributed to the difficulty the PRC members had in understanding the new political situation in the country. However, American advisors were very helpful and the U.S. wanted to help the PRC run the country. This is because, quote, the U.S. loved the PRC and the PRC members, quote, loved the U.S. and viewed the U.S. as a benevolent benefactor who founded Liberia and protected the country as an independent state. So you could tell right there that's a little contradictory where they are, uh, as we'll kind of get more into, they are presenting themselves. And often if you read books today, some of the ones even that we're going to reference, they legitimately portray this coup as a kind of organic indigenous uprising against the hated Americo-Liberian elite who dominated the country. But then, curiously, the same group of indigenous rebel military guys just love the United States even more than the Americo-Liberians do. So a little bit curious. 
Anyways, going on, the PRC, therefore, because they love the U.S. so much, followed the directions dictated by American advisors who helped them structure the new government. The PRC consisted of 27 soldiers who were involved in the coup. The chairman was the head of state of Liberia, assisted by a vice chairman, vice head of state, followed hierarchically by the speaker, deputy speaker, secretary general, and commanding general of the AFL. Soldiers promoted to the council included four generals, 11 colonels, and eight majors. American advisors helped the PRC to issue several decrees. The most important was Decree Number 2, which suspended the Constitution of 1847. All political movements and activities were prohibited, and many leading members of Moja and the POW were included in the government. For example, Gabriel Bacchus Matthews, the leader of POW, became Minister of Foreign Affairs. Togba Natipate, the head of Moja, became Minister of Planning and Economic Affairs. Other vital positions were awarded to political activists such as George S. Boley, Minister of State for Presidential Affairs, H. Boima Fambula, Minister of Education, Oscar J. Quia, Minister of Local Government, Rural Development and Urban Construction, and Chea Chipu, Minister of Justice. Now, I laugh a little bit when I read that because in the previous chapter, we talked about the devastating rice riots of 1979, which to a large degree were spurred on by Gabriel Bacchus Matthews, the leader of PAL, and uh, to a lesser extent, Togba Natipite, the head of Moja, and a lot of other people, I think also H. Boima Fambula as well. And, you know, Gabriel Bacchus Matthews, we talked about, was accused by many people, including people who knew him well, of basically being a CIA agent. He apparently hung out at the U.S. Embassy in Monrovia all the time. He had a lot of contacts there. And on top of that, I believe the PAL was founded in the United States by Liberian students, of which there were uh, a, a decent amount because anyone with the means uh, would generally go to a college in the United States. So, you know, if we're thinking about the whole rice riots in a way being, uh, being orchestrated by CIA assets or agents, and then they're thrown in jail in the period leading up, to Tolbert's death, then Tolbert dies, all of these guys get released, and they get positions, they get cabinet positions in the new government. So the new government was, therefore, a combination of military commanders without experience, government administrators, American advisors, nationalists, leftist Pan-Africanists, and government officials who had supported Tolbert. The PRC could not be selective because they needed people to run state institutions, and there were not many qualified people in Liberia for these positions. The U.S. Embassy, just like we went over in the sort of a WikiLeaks cables where they wrote a list of you know potential uh, Jerry Rawlings of Liberia who might overthrow the government, they profiled government officials, and this is reflected in a declassified cable message that comments on the disposition of several key people in the Liberian government. Foreign Minister Gabriel Bacchus Matthews was viewed as, quote, shaping up as a cooperative, down-to-earth person, and, min and the Minister of, of Presidential Affairs, George Boley, was referred to as, quote, competent, humane, and thoughtful, with a positive attitude toward the United States. In contrast, H. Boima Fambula, 
the Minister of Education, was considered as, quote, potentially troublesome regarding his role as a, quote, strong force in the left wing of Moja, active in the Marxist-Leninist indoctrination of students. The Minister of Planning and Economic Affairs, Togba Natipate, was placed in service where it is believed he would have had incurred the least amount of damage, whereas Chiachipu, Justice Minister, was considered as, quote, unstable and should be replaced shortly. Doe is described as being about the optimum for a head of state. He has a leadership role in the military that is unquestioned. Although limited in education, he is quick on the uptake and defers to his advisors in areas beyond his competence. He is warm in his regard for America in general and in his relations to the American military. Now, we're going to come back to Chea Chipu in a second, who was somebody who testified at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission because he had some interesting things to say. But moving forward, U.S. Ambassador Smith stated that Doe knew little and cared less about communism than the Soviet Union. For Doe, this was a genuine tribal upheaval to get rid of the hated upper classes and to bring more privileges to the underprivileged. He was exceedingly pro-American because of the training he received earlier from the U.S. Army and the people he had known, such as, guess who, Colonel Gosney and his officers. Doe, quote, adored Colonel Gosney and referred him always in the third person as, quote, the chief. Smith further noted that what saved the U.S. role in Liberia was the presence of the, quote, U.S. military mission that had been there for decades. Smith further explained that he can't emphasize strongly enough how helpful it was to have this small group of American army officers consisting of a group of lieutenant colonels and majors who were closely synced with their counterparts in the AFL. Doe could quickly pass word that whatever the chief, Gostney says, goes. Doe knew that the U.S. soldiers would do everything they could for Liberia, and if there were problems, it was not the fault of Americans. The U.S. government sent three Army mobile training teams to Liberia to train the newly formed 1st Infantry Battalion, the Army Staff, and the Ranger Company. During the first anniversary of the PRC, 100 Green Berets from the U.S. military, in conjunction with the AFL, presented a joint military exercise to the Liberian people. This included a highly visible parachute show in Monrovia, which signaled U.S. military support for the Doe regime. They also sent a, quote, brand new Navy ship, an electronic affair. It was called a destroyer, but was the size of a cruiser, and it made quite an impression on the Liberian people. So Doe, I think, as I mentioned before, uh, had just, and I think as Charles Taylor mentioned, all of the soldiers that participated in the coup against William Tolbert had just gone through an army training program led by Colonel Robert Gosney. Now, in Demon Forces 2, I talked about how after the Rice Riots, Tolbert called in Gosney to basically ask him how to control crowds or what to do. I also mentioned that Gosney went to Tolbert in this tense period before his death and told him that one of his generals, who apparently was like Tolbert's most loyal, trusted general, had accepted a bribe from an American company. And, you know, that's actually illegal. And we might have to launch an investigation at the State Department and blah, blah, blah. Basically kind of almost trying to psyop Tolbert into or maybe threaten him into firing the one general that was most loyal to him. And then all of these uh, army acolytes of Robert Gosney just so happened to burst into the executive mansion and kill him. Now, 
I also mentioned a little earlier that, you know, there were rumors, uh, Han notes it in his book, that among the rumors of who, who killed Tolbert, somebody talked about a white man doing it. Like a white hand, a, a man, a white man wearing a tribal mask was the one who fired the shot. Now, there are other rumors that it was one of the young soldiers that did that, but it was from Tolbert's wife herself that said that these men painted for war in tribal masks burst in and they're the ones who killed them and killed two of Tolbert's small children as well. And I believe because of the indigenous tribe that she was from, I forget if she was a crew or something else, but they they spared her life because she was not America Liberian. So she, I think, even wrote an entire memoir about her life and about that experience. There's some very interesting, I think that's where people get kind of the, her official version of the story from. But if you go on My Black Planet, you can find an excerpt of the testimony of Chea Chipu, the justice minister who I guess the U.S. Embassy did not like and thought he was un, un, he was unstable and not serious. So they had two groups here to stage the coup. The coup was staged by CIA, white people. And I just don't know, Mrs. Tobo told me point blank. The person who killed me, that white man, the person who shot my husband, that white man. And the instance in which okay, the president was this. The president was in his room. And Mrs. Toba was in her room with the children. When the people were knocking the door for him to open and fire, they started shooting, Toba got concerned. So he left his wife's room with the children and wanted to take the side door to get outside the, the room, maybe to, to find an escape or something like that. He was met, and Mrs. Toba was right behind him. So she said, the person who shot my husband, there are not these people here who are talking about do then. He said, a white man shot my husband. She always said that. Um, that white people killed, it, killed President Tobo. Do then was just enjoying the name. She said, the man who shot her husband was a white man. Not these people, which me do then. Who going around and say they, they can make good. And not them. This was organized as an international plot. I don't know why they want to make such a plan like that because it didn't help us at all. But what was the role of Colonel Jebo? How did he come into the picture? All right, Colonel Jebo. I said they organized two versions. Doe and his group were trained. They were trained by Americans. Doe and his group were trained at the Tokman military camp near the rubber farm here. How they call it Todi. And Colonel Jebo were trained in Todi. Doe then were trained in shuffling by the CIA, special squad. They were trained there. And Colonel Jabo, he was a good army man, they call him the Ranger. He went to the military school at West Point. He had his group over there. But though them being in, uh, what they played in, right here to uh, the shuffling, it looked like they were not too far. And the way it happened was that Tobo got the information that there was something going on. That's why he wanted to leave the country. After the, the, when we were to be trial on the 13, he was to leave the country because he saw something was going on. So the king had this thing here at the Sangana party. They said that was the party for us. For our, something about our, our that two party thing where they had in that building, where somebody would take over because another building again. Uh, 
They did it for us. So what he says straight up is that Tolbert's widow described to him how it was a white man that came in there wearing a mask and killed Tolbert. And that I guess there were multiple white men. I don't know if they were all white, but there was definitely like a group of, it would seem, foreign assassins that did this. So as far as she's concerned, this is obviously a U.S. military plot. And the official story of these, I mean, I've even read it in some sto- in some of these books about Liberia, or maybe if you watch like a Vice documentary, you're going to get a lot of this shit is that like the soldiers got drunk one night and they just were fed up with this corrupt asshole and they they impulsively stormed into the white basically the white house and killed the president and said well we're in charge now and i guess everybody just let them that is i hope um obvious to you dear listener um absolutely ridiculous so we have pretty good evidence here uh the other thing uh, just to to rack one more piece of uh, anecdotal evidence that this is a U.S. plot. There was another individual. Unfortunately, n- their names are not always identified in these video clips. But this guy, I'll play a little bit of it right now. Well, what I know, there have been stories about white people killing Tobo wearing marks. According to his wife, I have not talked to his wife. When I was working at Hotel Africa, when the coup took place, I was going to Elio. And I know that those men that did the overthrow celebrated, the OPRC celebrated with the U.S. Army officers that were training them from the U.S. military mission at Sasa Disco, Hotel Africa. And I sat in their company. The conversations I listened to, I concluded and deduced that they were part of it because Tobot was a progressive president, so to speak, within the international community. I said earlier that probably the U.S. did not like Tobot because he was not the kind of leader that they could pull by their nose, by the nose. So probably his brother was there buying up every company, insulting U.S. ambassador, Steve. So what, what do you think? In fact, declassified information that we are able to put our hands on. Even the execution of the 30 men, okay had to come from Washington, D.C. And the reason why they said the okay for the 30 men to die is because they wanted to put the fear of God in the progressive people in this country, the Amos Sawyer, the Tipotes, the Bwema Fangulas, so that when, when, the, when the PRC execute them, be a fresh small again in a shell. We were living in the era of the Cold War, and every progressive was seen as a socialist. So the U.S. was trying to fight, look for enemies where there were none, because I don't see any socialists in Liberia. How come I claim that he was a socialist? I don't think he was. He supported a free enterprise system. I'm not a socialist myself. I've never been. I'm a revolutionary democrat. So this man was working at the Hotel Africa on the night 
after, you know, basically the end of the day when Tolbert was murdered. And he straight up says he was in the company of a bunch of like white military guys that were celebrating having pulled off killing William Tolbert and were drinking and talking relatively open. He said he was in their company and they were openly talking about it. And that is his clear impression that this was an operation. So it's just it's absolutely inescapable that they were behind it and that also means that they were tacitly in support of everything that followed namely executing 13 high government officials you know i think it was dressed up in a scary tribal mask to make it look like an indigenous rebellion and of course those sentiments did exist there was great inequality in liberia but behind that mask is the u.s embassy and the military and the CIA who had a deep, almost like they're teaching the ruling class of Liberia lesson that they strayed too far from the path of being, you know, a committed U S anti-communist ally. And I guess it seems in their opinion and in Charles Taylor's estimation, he said, you know, the idea of opening a Soviet embassy in Monrovia was almost like a sin because Liberia was supposed to be America's little child. And Tolbert, I think to his credit, I mean, I, I think one way to look at, you know, Tolbert ultimately is this is sort of a case of the national bourgeoisie having certain progressive, maybe anti-imperialist aspects to it, but it also shows the deep uh, contradictions. I mean, even I think the fact that his family was so heavily economically invested in all kinds of industries in Liberia. And that was something you could sort of accurately say that his family was benefiting a lot from his own development projects. But ultimately, his support for armed liberation struggles, his struggles against apartheid, even if they were maybe primarily rhetorical, he was charting a very different radical course. And it was definitely something that was given the, as Charles Taylor noted, given the hypersensitive military and propaganda and CIA stations that were in Liberia and the fact that they wanted to use it as a springboard to feed mercenaries and covert support to various other conflicts going on at the time, like in Angola, for example. And I believe one of the things they had requested from Tolbert in the late 70s was uh, the right to establish like a QRF, like a quick reaction force at one of the airfields in Liberia. And he denied that. So in their little game of risk, Tolbert was going in an unacceptable direction. And it's like, it's really kind of wild because, I mean, you see this a lot with U.S. assassinations of foreign officials. And by the way, we're not just talking about the death of one Pan-Africanist leader uh, today in it might need to be split into two parts, but we're even going to venture outside of Liberia. But I think it's basically, I mean, you could watch all 20, 30, 40 videos of everybody saying it a hundred different ways. And it's just kind of staggering that if you read all kinds of even very in-depth like academic or journalistic depictions of this conflict, the willingness of like American and British writers to poo-poo the idea that it actually was a sinister conspiracy is kind of staggering. And I feel like if you swallow that falsehood, it starts to pollute your perception of everything 
that happens next. So what did happen next when Samuel Doe took over, killed a bunch of people, and placed a lot of young activists into power? Well, the United States aid to Liberia increased significantly from under $20 million in 1979 to over $120 million in 1982. And by the end of 1985, the PRC had received around $500 million in foreign aid. This far exceeded the aid given to any other sub-Saharan African country. So yeah, he just hit the jackpot, didn't he? America changed its tune. So uh, continuing from Han here, Herman Cohen, who served as U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs from 1989 to 1993 and became a key player in the Liberia conflict, noted that this aid was not aimed to benefit the general population in Liberia. Instead, it was meant to protect the interests of the United States because, quote, the Cold War tilted us in favor of supporting Doe because we got reciprocal treatment. We were supporting certain governments that were clearly not going to use their assistance for development, but use it for other reasons. And we supported people like Mobutu and Zaire and a few others. So, yeah, Herman Cohen's going to pop up a lot in this story. He is almost like he's like a re- there's a couple people like him in this that are like refreshingly honest, like FOPO psychopaths a little bit. And yeah, I mean, he just says it pretty much right there. <laughs> like, you know, we supported him because uh, he we got reciprocal treatment and etc. So the plan was that the PRC should rule the country until 1985, which would provide the time to restore law and order, shift many of the policies implemented by the Tolbert administration, prepare a new constitution for the Second Republic, and plan for elections in 1985. After the election, the military junta would then transfer power to a civilian government and, quote, return to their barracks. It's been a pleasure to welcome Liberian head of state Samuel K. Doe on his first visit to the United States. It's especially fitting that we should be meeting this year as the United States and Liberia celebrate 120 years of diplomatic relations. Our discussions gave us an opportunity to reaffirm the special friendship and mutual respect between our two countries. Clearly a firm bond unites Liberians and Americans who have come together professionally and socially throughout the years. Our two governments have a long history of cooperation on bilateral and international issues. Chairman Doe told me of his government's ambitious goals, including the return to democratic institutions and economic stabilization. We welcome his emphasis on bringing the benefits of development to every corner of Liberia, and today we discussed how the United States can assist Liberia in achieving these goals. As I stated clearly in our discussion, the United States stands by its commitments to Liberia and looks forward to continued mutual cooperation. My meeting with Chairman Doe marks the beginning of his two-week visit to the United States. Made me a little envious when he told me that his next stop after Washington is going to be, well, not near, not exactly the next stop, but the next one after it is going to be Los Angeles, California. But in addition to meeting with a wide range of administration officials and members of the Congress, he will have an opportunity to meet many Americans outside the government and Liberians who live in the United States as well. Personal ties among our private citizens play an important role 
in the special relationship between our two countries. I hope the long-standing ties between our two people and between our governments will be further strengthened in the years ahead. And Mr. Chairman, you are most welcome. Ladies and gentlemen of the press, I'm extremely happy to be in the United States of America, long considered the lands of free and the home of the brave. My visit here today is to respond to the kind invitation extended me by President Ronald Reagan, the man of abiding courage, strong will, and foresight. As you know, Liberia and the United States have a long and historic friendship which span more than 150 years. However, as Liberia first indigenous leader to visit the United States, my presence here is significant in two principled respects. Firstly, the first reaffirm our traditional friendship with the United States. Secondly, we portray to the world the United States continuing identification with and support for Liberia. In discussion with President Reagan, understand the causes of the Liberian Revolution and the economic problem which presently confront the country. I also avail my country's hopes and aspirations for the maintenance of a free enterprise system and our yearning to democratic ideals. Together, President Reagan and I discussed matters of international concern particularly the war in Lebanon and independent for Namibia. I'd also delighted the economic measures being taken by our government to achieve economic recovery and promote private sector investment. We are assured that these conditions are indispensable to the achievement of the smooth transition to the Soviet government in 1985. Now, the other thing, of course, that is happening as Doe kind of settles into power. I think it's it's worth noting for, I guess, everybody out there that sees Jimmy Carter on an airplane and wants to, like, shake his hand for being the nicest president ever, that uh, I, I don't want to say I, I'm 100% convinced that Jimmy Carter would have had to sign off on murdering President Tolbert in this way. But, <laughs> I mean, somebody in his, his administration, you know, or maybe, maybe it was Brzezinski, who knows, somebody had to sign off on it. But not long Long after that, Carter's gone, and there's a new cowboy in the White House, Ronald Reagan, and of course, his very, very active CIA director, William Casey, who we've talked about so much before, and our favorite WASP gangster, George Herbert Walker Bush, in the vice presidential seat. And they immediately take a huge shine to Samuel Doe. They love Doe. And I believe in 1982, I'm going to play the audio here if you haven't heard it already, uh, Doe gets invited uh, to do a, you know official presidential visit and does a very ritzy press conference. And it's interesting to contrast the ceremony and the majesty of Reagan's meeting with Samuel Doe and William Tolbert's visit to the U.S. in 1976, where, you know, he got to address the House of Representatives, but then Nelson Rockefeller and the Speaker were caught on a hot mic, like, talking shit about Liberia, and 
et cetera, et cetera. And then they had to apologize and all this other stuff. The The pattern of dissing Liberian presidents uh, suddenly stops with Samuel Doe. Doe is a guy they can work with, who they can trust. But back home around the same time, there are a variety of internal conflicts coming up to uh, the surface with the various members of the PRC. Now, I think I'm going to read for the first time here from one book that I'm going to start citing. It has a lot of great information, but is one of those ones with I don't quite like the framing it uh, often takes on certain things. But this is The Mask of Anarchy, The Destruction of Liberia, and the Religious Dimension of an African Civil War by Stephen Ellis. And he writes about the the period around the coup and some of the personalities involved that in the tense atmosphere after the rice riots of April 1979, there were widespread rumors of an impending coup. The CIA and the Pentagon, annoyed by President Tolbert's tilt to the left in his foreign policy and especially by his refusal to allow bunkering facilities at Roberts Airfield for a U.S. rapid deployment force, withdrew their support. I mean, that withdrew their support is like doing a lot of work there. But anyways, American security and defense officials began actively to search for a possible replacement in the event that Tolbert should fall, as seemed increasingly inevitable after the rice riots. The political activists of Moja and Powell continued to apply pressure on the government, with Powell formally launching itself as an opposition party, the Progressive People's Party, while Moja, seeking to politicize the army, established a night school known as the Barracks Union, of which Amos Sawyer was the principal. Tolbert responded by banning the PPP and detaining a number of militants whom he threatened to execute. So pervasive was the sense of impending change that one man intent on making a political career, a leader of the Liberian student movement in the U.S., headed back to Monrovia to be at the heart of things. His name was Charles Taylor. Foreign diplomats and Liberian politicians alike could see that the Tolbert government was running out of time. But by what precise means was it to be replaced? The young politicians of Moja and Pau, hungry for power and full of radical talk, had a genuine popular following but lacked the means to force their way into power. Rumors of an impending military coup were most often associated with the name of Major William Jarbo, who had trained as a ranger in the U.S. and was said to have excellent connections with two American security officials. Jarbo was not the only soldier with political ambitions. Although the exact sequence of events remains unclear, it seems that militants of Moja and Pau had established connections with a group of lower-ranking soldiers, including notably a certain Sergeant Thomas Wessien. More on him in a second. Radical political militants and intellectuals urged their new friends in the armed forces to act, hoping that a coup d'etat would be the means for a new generation of politicians to come to power. Another soldier, Sergeant Thomas Quiangpa, also led a group intent on taking some sort of action against the government. Urged on by the political activists, the soldiers believed that the government was planning to execute a batch of political prisoners on the first anniversary of the 1979 rice riots. To forestall this, 17 soldiers, led by Quiangpa, including Weixian and others, launched a coup on the night of April 12, 1980. They had expected Tolbert to be staying at his private residence, but instead the group which invaded the executive mansion, led by Master Sergeant Doe, found the president sleeping at his office. There they killed him. 
It was Doe, the most senior in rank of the plotters, who went on the radio the next morning to announce the successful overthrow of the true Whig Party government. In the popular quarters of Monrovia, people celebrated in carnival mood, some dressing in masks and extravagant costumes, looting, celebrating, and politics combined in one wild street party. And as we said before, 13 leading members of the Tolbert government were passed before a tribunal convicted of corruption and executed on the beach on April 22nd, 1980, amid unprecedented international publicity. Now, this is this is worth uh, noting. Major Jarbo, who had been on the verge of launching his own counter coup and who surely would have been most acceptable to the CIA, headed for sanctuary abroad, but was hunted down and killed by the new junta. Another late casualty of the coup is Adolphus Tolbert, the son of Liberia's murdered president, and like we said, Adolphus Tolbert's wife, Desiree Daisy Delafosse, was a goddaughter of Ivorian president Félix Houphoué Boigny. She hurried to Abidjan and appealed in tears to her godfather, the grand old man of West African politics, to spare the life of her husband, who had taken refuge in the French embassy in Monrovia. Houphoué Boigny immediately contacted Samuel Doe and extracted from him a promise that Adolphus Tolbert's life would be spared. Nevertheless, Adolphus Tolbert was abducted from his sanctuary at the French embassy in June 1980 and murdered, a slight which Houphoué Boigny never forgave. It is interesting to mention there uh, Major Jarbo and somebody, one of the military guys, I'm forgetting his name, was talking about that alleged counter coup by William Jarbo. And he actually said that like the reason he was caught is because he was trying to cross a river in broad daylight, but he couldn't swim very well. And I don't know if he got, you know, somebody had to save him or something or he called out, but people basically caught him. And this guy kind of joked that like some ranger was like he had been trained at West Point by the U.S. Army. He'd gone to ranger school, but apparently they kind of laughed that, you know, he couldn't swim and like what kind of soldier, what kind of ranger like swims across a river in broad daylight and doesn't wait till night. So they kind of, I guess, kind of nagging Major Jarbo a little bit and he was caught by Doe's men and then executed. It's a little murky to what extent the CIA was backing him or if they wanted him to be taken out for some reason. Because as it turns out, going back to the PRC, there were a couple of prominent, you know, now generals in the PRC who were identified as uh, having not the right kind of politics by the U.S. The biggest one was General Thomas Wissian. Hahn writes about this. The diverse representation between Liberian government created several internal conflicts Toe, one of the PRC members, states that within a short time, key government officials began to divide the PRC's rank and file using socialist and communist ideas to the detriment of the People's Redemption Council. General Thomas Wessien, the vice head of state who belonged to the crew ethnic group, was influenced by Pan-African ideology, opposed the PRC's close relations with the U.S. government, and accused Doe of enriching himself to the detriment of the people. Doe accused Cien of having close contact with socialist groups in Liberia and Libya. In 1981, Cien and four other PRC members were accused of plotting a coup against Doe, and a trial was scheduled composed of local chiefs and elders who endorsed the execution of Cien. Doe states that Cien had received money and arms from Libya, and during the trial, Cien confessed to organizing the coup. 
the members of the council agreed that they should, quote, set an example or else that kind of thing would continue. So Wissian and others were executed. I just want to throw in there, I had trouble finding it this morning when I was looking, but there is a testimony from somebody talking about Thomas Wissian, who apparently was kind of a genuine sort of left winger in the PRC milieu. But he mentioned a very chilling anecdote where, you know, it wasn't just that he was using communistic ideas in the PRC to like divide everybody from each other, or it wasn't really that he was working for Libya. But apparently, as his role as vice head of state, he was meeting with Firestone. And we talked about how finance minister uh, Stephen Tolbert, you know, uh, tried to play hardball with Firestone in the 70s and then his plane mysteriously like blew up and dropped into the ocean and pretty much everybody thought that the CIA probably did it like in cahoots with Firestone so apparently according to one person who knew Cien or wait who knew Thomas Wissien he went and tried to do a similar thing and hit them with some neo-colonial pan-africanist kind of socialist rhetoric that hey Firestone you guys are ripping off the Liberian people and it's not fair and we're going to do something about it because you've been exploiting the indigenous population for decades now. And according to this friend of Weixian, one of the Firestone representatives made an extremely thinly veiled death threat to him. Something along the lines of, watch out, watch what happens. Like, you better drop this and do what we want or watch what happens to you. And not long after that, he was arrested by Doe. <laughs> you know, maybe they went and complained to Doe that this guy, I'm sure the U.S. embassy heard about it. And so I think it's not uh, a complete coincidence that he was identified as a dangerous member and then taken out on these kind of trumped up charges and killed. But of course, that has consequences. So uh, Han writes that internal tensions increased after the execution of Cien and Doe became more devoted to his own Kron ethnic group, which fostered nepotism and ethnic rivalry. Joseph Gibro, the chairperson of the Grand Gidea Association in the Americas, recalls that many Krons were concerned about Doe's tribalistic approach because they feared that other ethnic groups would unite and turn against the Krons. In August 1982, when Doe was invited to Washington by President Reagan, the Grand Gidea Association met with Doe and expressed their concerns about tribalism in Liberia. However, Doe did not take these warnings seriously. During Doe's visit to the United States, he declared his commitment to Reagan's neoliberal policy. After a private meeting with President Reagan, Doe stated that the government of Liberia would, quote, promote private sector investment and that Reagan had assured him that the PRC could continue to count on America's understanding and support for the fulfillment of the objectives of the revolution. At a speech delivered by Doe at Georgetown University's Center for Strategic and International Studies, attended by U.S. government officials, scientists, industrialists, bankers, academics, and prominent public figures, Doe described the economic policies of the Tolbert administration. He described them as, quote, poor domestic economic policies that weaken Liberia's economic position and increased foreign debt. Therefore, he explained... The government of Liberia had in the past two years been working closely with the International Monetary Fund on stabilization programs that would restore a balance in the economy. 
The role of the Liberian government was to, quote, follow sound fiscal and labor policies and to supply the necessary services and infrastructural facilities needed to attract potential investors, provide continuity and stability in the policy environment, and to avoid unnecessary and undue interference in the affairs of the business community and harassment of its members. Doe further stated that the government of Liberia was working closely with the World Bank to secure a, quote, structural adjustment loan to help put the economy on a pragmatic path toward a stable, sustained, and more equitable growth. Moreover, he stated that the public sector in Liberia, quote, overextended itself, which resulted in a slower economic growth than would have been attained otherwise, and that the extent to which Liberia is successful in expanding aggregate output and increasing employment will depend mostly on what happens in the private sector. <sighs> okay, uh, to attract foreign investors, the U.S. government supported, in collaboration with the German Technical Cooperation Agency, GTZ, and several national and international agencies, a comprehensive geological survey of Liberia's natural resources. In 1983, this materialized into the Planning and Development Atlas, which identified oil sources, gold, diamonds, timber, and minerals, such as uranium and rutile. Most of the policies implemented by the Tolbert administration were reversed, and most of the state-owned enterprises were shut down based on the argument that they were not financially sustainable. The structural adjustment program stalled the economy, and Liberia entered a decade of negative gross domestic product growth, wow, like based neoliberalism, which in the first two years of the PRC administration was around negative 5%. As the economy contracted, ethnic tensions increased. So here we go. Based neoliberal pro-business policy leads to negative 5% economic growth. And if that's not enough... They're also getting a ridiculous amount of foreign aid and military aid from the United States, which is going straight to Doe and the PRC and is mostly being kept by him and his supporters. So not really a qualitative change from the old Americo-Liberian system of largesse. And the country starts to spiral downward. But, you know, the Omega station is safe and uh, we can probably have a rapid deployment force. And the Voice of America, you know, I think maybe not yet, but is about to be run by Tucker Carlson's dad. More on that later. Is uh, broadcasting all around Africa and to the entire world and gets the red carpet treatment in Washington. And he is uh, loved by the Reagan administration etc., etc. But then some of these choices of his and the failure of his policies uh, lead to a new conflict in 1983. It was that year that Doe received intelligence reports about another coup plot by General Thomas Kwiangpa, PRC member and commanding general of the AFL. Kwiangpa was from Nimba County and belonged to the Gyo ethnic group, and similar to Sien, he was inspired by the Pan-African ideology and opposed the U.S. neocolonial system in Liberia. Doe gathered the rural chiefs again for a trial, but this time they did not endorse execution of Kwiangpa. This was partly because the corruption and repression of Doe's regime had become well known. In October 1983, General Kwiangpa's service in the government was terminated, 
In November 1983, after Doe received intelligence information about Kuyangpa mobilizing a military force in Nimba County to remove him from power, Doe launched a military campaign against civilians in Nimba County known as the Nimba Raid. Kuyangpa fled Liberia, but civilians, predominantly from the Gyo ethnic group, were randomly killed. This deepened divisions between the members within the PRC and exacerbated tensions between Gyo and Kron tribes in Liberia. So yes, General Kuyangpa, who at least you could say is uh, a little bit more... Actually, I mean, the person who was set up in the first place to basically be the leader of the government after they killed Tolbert, but unbeknownst to them, Tolbert was at the executive mansion instead of at his home. You know, the idea, I guess the plan, which would have, I guess, had to be some kind of U.S. plan, was to have Kuyanka kill Tolbert and then assume power. But instead, it gets kicked over to Doe. Now, there's all kinds of reasons maybe why. I think maybe since Kuyanka had a somewhat more Pan-African progressive ideology, maybe some people at the embassy or in the CIA or the military felt that maybe he wasn't the best, the most trustworthy person for to serve their purposes. So it's unclear to what extent he actually is planning a coup at this point in 1983, but Doe comes after him and unlike Thomas Wesien, he escapes and gets away. And conclusion to his story is very fascinating. But just before we get to the next segment here, a little more from Han, because now Doe is becoming a little more of an unpopular pariah figure. So what what's a leader to do when they feel like they're running out of friends? So Han writes, with an increasing number of enemies, Doe and his closest allies became more dependent on external protection and intelligence. In August 1983, immediately after reestablishing relations with Israel, Doe was invited to make a state visit to President Haim Herzog. As a result of this visit, Doe promoted Israel's interest internationally, and Israel sent advisors to work with the ministries and agencies of the Liberian government. Israel also sent security forces to Liberia and provided a special protection unit for Doe. Israeli security forces joined the U.S. in training the AFL and supported the Liberian security sector. H. Boima Fambula, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, opposed Doe's decision to establish relations with Israel, which led to his dismissal. Fambula stated that since he was unable to influence the Liberian government from within, he increased involvement with the Pan-African movement in Liberia. This movement had become paralyzed because the Liberian government had launched a form of McCarthyism where Pan-Africanism was juxtaposed with socialism. Fonbulla went into exile and spent much of his time in Sierra Leone and Ghana. Since Liberian scholars and students continued to receive socialist material from the Soviet embassy in Monrovia, Doe expelled Soviet ambassador Anatoly Yulianov in 1983. This was based on allegations that the USSR was interfering in Liberia's internal affairs. <laughs> LOL. In return, the USSR instructed the Liberian ambassador to the USSR, Christopher Ricks, to leave the country. So yeah, he kicks out pretty much the Soviets. I think he kicks out all the other uh, Eastern Bloc countries, his relations with Libya sour very quickly. He embraces Israel as his new best friend. But yeah, not everybody appreciates this approach to foreign policy, or to really any aspect of his policy. 
You'll be thief. I know be thief. You'll be rogue. I know be rogue. You'll be steal. I know be steal. You'll be robber. I know be robber. You'll be am robber. No be am robber. You'll be thief. I know be thief. You'll be rogue. I know be rogue. You'll be steal. I know be steal. You'll be robber. I know be robber. You'll be am robber. No be am robber. I know be thief. You'll be thief. I know be rogue. You'll be rogue. They steal. They steal. I not be robber. You be robber. I not be am robber. You be am robber. I not be thief. You be thief. I not be rogue. You be rogue. I not they steal. They steal. I not be robber. You be robber. I not be am robber. You be am robber. Argument, argument, argue. Finally, time for us to focus in on one of the main characters in this saga, and one of the murkiest ones, too. I'm talking, of course, about Charles Taylor. Now, because this is SJ, and we don't hold back, I want to give you a full background on who Charles Taylor is. But to do that, we're going to need to rewind the clock a little bit back to the 70s, And by the 70s, of course, I mean the 1870s. I'm going to start by reading from a book that I'm going to cite a lot in future chapters, but we haven't touched on it yet. This is American Warlord by Johnny Dwyer. And he traces the early lineage of uh, Charles Taylor's family. So this is how he describes it. On a mid-December afternoon... In 1871, the Edith Rose moored in Monrovia. It was a black-hulled trading bark out of New York, with 16 sails drawn from three towering masts. It carried 243 Americans on a journey to start a new life in Liberia. The landing of the Edith Rose was like many others that had preceded it since the settlers first arrived in 1822, but it remained distinct in that those aboard were fleeing not slavery, but the violent prospect of living as free blacks in the American South. So the settlers of the Edith Rose belonged to two companies, the Clay Hill Company from South Carolina and the smaller Georgia Company from Valdosta, the scene of Lowndes County, Georgia. The Valdosta emigres were led by Jefferson Bracewell, the head of his 16-person family, who had left at a moment of extreme tension between blacks and whites, Republicans and defeated Confederates, the civilians and military, Despite, or perhaps because of, the presence of a garrison of the 103rd Infantry Regiment of the U.S. Colored Troops in Valdosta, the area saw violence, including bombings, looting, and murders, long after the Confederacy capitulated. Political violence was an experience that had been shared by the South Carolinians. 
Reverend Elias Hill, who led them, had testified before Congress on the abuse he had suffered after the war at the hands of the Ku Klux Klan, which had pushed him to seek a new home in Liberia. Over the weekend of their arrival in Monrovia, the passengers were carried to shore along with their belongings. The women and children of the Edith Rose remained in the capital, while the men boarded eight small boats and made their way up the St. Paul River into the bush toward a settlement called Arthington. Arthington was just the type of place the society's founders had envisioned as a starting point for this program. The settlement lay several dozen miles inland from Monrovia along the St. Paul River. It had been established only two years before the arrival of the Edith Rose. A party from North Carolina had pioneered it on a forested and hilly bank offset from the river. The town took its name from its sponsor, Robert Arthington, the hermetic heir to a British industrialist family who had donated 1,000 pounds sterling to start the encampment. With his gift, the North Carolina Company, led by a deacon named Alonzo Haggard, cut a town from the forest, constructing a school, a handful of homes, and most important, a church. The surrounding territory had already been, quote, pacified over five decades by settlers in a series of armed contests with the local tribes. The first emigrants in 1822 had established settlements on land where the indigenous tribes had lived for generations. Within a few years, two of the dominant indigenous tribes, the Day and Gola, set aside their traditional enmity to form an alliance against the newly arrived Americans. The tribes had a shared economic interest that was threatened by the new arrivals. The slave trade, carried on with French and Spanish traders like Theodore Cano and Pedro Blanco, Attacks and kidnapping soon became a hazard of life in the bush for the settlers. Eventually, they decided the assaults required a response, and marching into the bush, they overtook a tribal fortress manned by fighters from the alliance. The victory stunned the tribesmen, and their alliance soon broke apart. While the Dei would lose strength over time, the Gola would remain antagonists of the settlers for decades. In the 1830s and 40s, the government of Monrovia eventually came to support the settlers along the St. Paul River, sending a militia force to suppress the Gola slave trade. The conflict had further entrenched the hostility between settlers and the indigenous population, which would persist for generations. And as we've noted at length before, two classes of Liberians emerged, the indigenous tribal Liberians and the settlers called Americo-Liberians or, more pejoratively, Congo people. Emigres like Jefferson Bracewell, the elder of the group, first faced the challenge of survival before confronting the local politics. Bracewell, 47, and his wife, Rhoda, 40, had a family of 14 children and grandchildren, the youngest a six-month-old girl, Phyllis. He was a carpenter by trade and immediately began working just under 40 acres of land with his sons, cultivating coffee, cotton, sugarcane, potatoes, and rice. Some of the crop was for their subsistence. The remainder, in particular the sugar and coffee, was for sale. The Bracewell women tanned leather and assembled clothing, spinning and weaving their own fabric. By 1888, the settlers were farming produce for local markets and as much as 100,000 pounds of coffee for export. One uncomfortable fact, not highlighted in the society's publications, was the settlers' reliance on coerced tribal labor to maintain their existence. Indeed, by the late 19th century, Americo-Liberian society had become a grotesque mirror of the one the settlers had left behind in the American South. This was particularly apparent in Monrovia, where plantation dress and lifestyles had become the norm among the nation's elite. So Dwyer goes on, and some of this is summarizing what we've gone over before, but it's probably worth reiterating. The 
America Liberian elite held fast to the vestiges of the American establishment and, in particular, to secret societies, which took root and flourished more quickly than political institutions, the Freemasons, the Grand United Order of Oddfellows, the United Brothers of Friendship, and the Sisters of the Mysterious Ten all had active local chapters. In fact, the first request to start a Grand Lodge of Masons in Liberia was sent in 1824, nearly 23 years before the government was founded. The indigenous culture, meanwhile, had its own secret rites. The traditional belief systems of Poro for men and Sande for women had long relied on secret initiation rites. In the case of Poro, a, quote, bush devil, a masked figure serving in the role of a priest, presided over rituals, almost completely undocumented, that were said to include cannibalism and human sacrifice. Similar reports of ritual violence would follow the Freemasons in Liberia, who erected a temple atop Monrovia's Mamba Point. Both societies preserved their secrecy, but eventually opened to one another. It's a pity you are not a Mason, one Liberian told a Western researcher investigating Poro, for then I could tell you more. The Poro is just like Freemasonry. As the notion of political power and influence developed in the young republic, these societies would be instrumental in the lives of the nation's leaders. So going on. At its founding, the government in Liberia professed to be a representative democracy, while it was in fact a one-party semi-feudal state. It would take a century before indigenous Liberians would be granted suffrage. Even then, the political elite remained entirely America-Liberian for 132 years, a ruling minority of 2% that was attached to the mainline Christian churches and Masonic societies, unwilling to yield their political power. Yet the exchange between cultures wasn't entirely one-sided. Tribal societies, traditionally governed by powerful chiefs who distributed power and wealth within the community, provided an example for the settlers. Monrovia's top-down style of governance was more reflective of the society of the indigenous people. The society's division manifested within the settlers' households, even just a generation removed from the Valdosta settlers. Serena Ann Bracewell and Philip Andrew Taylor, both first-generation Americo-Liberians, married in March 1918. As had become customary among settler families, the couple took in a teenage indigenous girl as a house servant, a practice that harkened back to white slave masters who brought young black women into the home to perform domestic duties and also to field sexual advances. Her name was Yasa Zo, from the Gola tribe. Family members recalled her as a strikingly gorgeous young girl, yet as was common for her tribal background, she spoke limited English and had received only a third grade education. Serena Taylor ran a strict Baptist home, but her son, Nielsen, in his early 20s, became romantic with Yasazo, who became pregnant. Faced with the impending birth of a child, the family's religious leanings ran headlong into the prejudice against indigenous Liberians. One side of the family saw intermarriage between the two communities as a greater taboo than allowing the child to be born outside marriage. The other disagreed. Ultimately, Nielsen Taylor married Yasazo, who took on the Anglo name Louise. In the early 20th century, the marriage of Nielsen and Louise, if ahead of its own time, reflected the inevitable intermingling of cultures. With each generation, the settlers became less American and more Americo-Liberian, a unique culture synonymous with power. In 1948, nearly 75 years after the Bracewells departed Valdosta, Nielsen Taylor and Louise brought their third child into the world. They did not choose for him a Gola name like Jamal. They chose Charles, a name descended from his father's American line. The child's place of birth, Arthington, made clear that he was a son of his new nation, Liberia, but his name, Charles Taylor, 
left no doubt as to which tribe he belonged. So yes, in January 1948, Charles MacArthur Taylor is born in Arthington, Liberia. Now, skipping to a different section, now we're going to talk about his young adulthood and how he came to be involved in politics. So Dwyer writes, Taylor arrived in Boston in 1972, a junior government accountant looking to set himself apart with a degree from an American university. He had worked in Monrovia under the Liberian Minister of Finance, Stephen Tolbert, the brother of President William Tolbert, both who I think we've pretty well established now were uh, murdered by the U.S. government. Taylor had been an ambitious young man long before joining the government. As a young man, he taught junior high school in an iron ore mining town. The work suited him, he recalled, and even though many of his students were older men working for the mining company, Bethlehem Steel, he always felt he was the master of his classroom. Once in the capital, he continued his education with correspondence courses affiliated with LaSalle University in Chicago, and he worked the small network of connections of his father Nielsen, a judge in Monrovia. He eventually applied for a position at the Ministry of Finance, performing well enough on an examination to be hired on as an accountant. Another young economist serving in the ministry at that time was Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Both would later become president of Liberia, but the two would meet only in passing. Well, at this time, at least. Taylor's position at the ministry guaranteed him a salary and conferred a measure of respect on him within Liberian society. But he wanted more. Following the path of a civil servant would ensure only that he remained a bystander to true political power. By looking to his boss, Stephen Tolbert, he could see the blunt realities of Liberia's meritocracy. Education might be rewarded with greater roles and responsibilities, but power still was strongly derived from family and tribe. The strongest tribe within the nation wasn't, in fact, a tribe at all. It was those few who could trace their ancestral line to the United States. Taylor was among them, at least on his father's side, yet his family was far from the elite. Taylor decided that he had to go to America to take his next step in life. He later attributed the decision to a superficial event. His girlfriend at the time dropped him for someone with a master's degree who had just returned from the U.S., the degree reflected not just attainment, but also heightened status in Liberian society as a, quote, bentu, somebody who had traveled to and received education outside the country. Each month, Taylor quietly saved his accountant's salary, eventually mailing an application to Chamberlain Junior College outside Boston. He did not have the means to travel abroad, but wasn't dissuaded from pursuing the opportunity. Soon afterward, he received an acceptance from Chamberlain and stitched together enough support from a mentor at the ministry to raise funds for airfare. He would become a Bentu. By the time Taylor arrived at Chamberlain's leafy campus in Newton, Massachusetts in the fall of 1972, he had burned through his meager savings. When he showed up at an orientation with empty pockets, the administration gave him a job washing dishes and mopping floors. That alone would not cover his tuition and board. Chamberlain applied his earnings to cover his coursework, but asked Taylor to move off campus. Forced to find a place to live, he turned to the loose network of Liberians along the East Coast. A cousin, Edwin Holder, found him a Liberian roommate, Edwin Lewis. Taylor soon grew restless with school. Accounting guaranteed a solid vocational career path, but he had a thirst for politics and wanted to participate in the changes occurring in Africa and Liberia specifically. Liberia was no longer just an exodus point for freed African-American slaves. It was a country with a diverse native population. 
During this era, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf attended a graduation ceremony at the University of Liberia, she later recalled, and witnessed a moving moment when the university choir had sung one of its songs in a local language. In 1959, when Taylor was 11, Kwame Nkrumah, the hero of Ghana's independence movement and its first president, had traveled to Liberia to meet with President William Tubman in Guinea's Sekou Toure. Uh, we mentioned this. This was the uh, Santa Quelli summit. And Dwyer says, Nkrumah stood out from his revolutionary peers, not content to define himself solely in opposition to colonialism. He held a larger vision for a unified Africa that he hoped could elevate the continent's geopolitical strength. But even as a young man, Taylor could see that Nkrumah's pan-African ideology was not attractive to the political establishment in Liberia, which drew its strength from the United States. If Nkrumah, a fierce, independent African thinker, represented to Taylor the new face of Africa in a post-colonial world, he also represented something unique to Liberians grappling with their nation's identity crisis. Indeed, Liberia faced unique obstacles to, quote, independence, for one, the country was not a colony, at least officially, of any other country. Unlike neighboring Guinea, Ivory Coast, and Sierra Leone, no Western ruling power stood in the way of complete enfranchisement for its citizens. It had no colonial military or police force on which to focus rage against the injustices of society. Instead, it had something more amorphous but equally pernicious, the division between the descendants of settlers and indigenous Liberians. The corrupt political culture that had taken hold in the society served only to reinforce this division. The weak, poor, and powerless were not only the majority, they were also those who worked the rubber plantations in Harbel and mined the iron ore in Yakepa. The powerful families in Monrovia passed position and privilege from one generation to the next. In the harsh dawn of post-colonial Africa, the greatest obstacle to progress for Liberia was clearly the type of, quote, independent nation it had become. There was little chance that Taylor could participate in the sort of continental change that Nkrumah advocated simply by moving numbers across the page within a government ministry. He wanted a hand in making policy. He was influenced, he later recalled, by the views of the development economist Walt Rostow, a Kennedy and Johnson administration official, an advocate of the Vietnam War, as well as by Stephen Tolbert's efforts to develop the Liberian economy. His ability to study economics was limited in Liberia. Despite having little money, Taylor chose to enroll in Chamberlain. To raise the $3,000 tuition, Taylor needed to work full-time while studying. He found a job in nearby Somerville at Sweetheart Plastics, owned by a Jewish man named Max Greenbaum, who did not let the prejudices and racial anxieties of the moment color his relationship with the young African student. He was a very generous man, Taylor would say. He permitted me to do my university and put in time to fill in the lost hours. Politics, though, quickly supplanted Taylor's academic interests. Within the increasingly active diaspora of Liberians living along the East Coast, he found a forum. He began making the circuit of parties held by local groups in Boston, Rhode Island, New York, and Philadelphia. Taylor met several other eagerly political Liberians, Tom Owiu, a Cornell graduate based in New Jersey, and Blamo Nelson, whom Taylor soon came to respect for his skill and dedication as a paper pusher. As active as the local groups were, they very much resembled society back home, inherently defined by divisions of tribe and background. The activist politics embraced by this group provided an opportunity for an ambitious young man like Taylor. In 1974, 
The Union of Liberian Associations in the Americas, ULAA, was founded to bring together diaspora groups along the East Coast and provide a single voice for these Liberians in their nation's domestic politics, but it also established a hierarchy in the expat community. Taylor would claim to be among the group's founders, but he would not serve on the board until 1979. For Taylor, the ULAA was a starting point, the first of several pivotal organizations with which he would be associated. So yeah, the ULAA, what, just to note here, is an organization that was uh, a sort of a fellow traveler to some extent with the PAL of Gabriel Bacchus Matthews and MOJA, both of which we've already discussed at length were to various degrees maybe uh, infiltrated or manipulated or partnered with uh, the CIA or the U.S. government. So just keep that in mind as we go through this section because I feel that um, in one of many slight quibbles I have with uh, Dwyer's book, sometimes he doesn't underline it the way that, say, uh, Niels Hahn or some of the Liberians of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee would. But anyways, although the ULAA was far removed from the domestic politics of Liberia, it had real leverage with President Tolbert. His predecessor Tubman, the son of a freed slave from Atlanta, was credited with opening Liberia to foreign investment and modern development, but he represented the interests of the Americo-Liberian establishment. President Tolbert entered office determined to open Liberian politics and culture, declaring, quote, war on disease, ignorance, and poverty. So he goes over the kind of mixed bag of, uh, of you know, reforms that, uh, that Tolbert initiated, which we've already covered, and how some of these things were a little more symbolic, like his safari suit dress, and things like that. So he goes on, Many Liberians viewed Tolbert as a leader in tune with the currents of history, but in fact, he held fast to many of the fundamentals of elitism. He was a 33rd degree Freemason, Membership in the group remained a prerequisite to political power. When Tolbert met with President Gerald Ford, the Liberian president learned that his counterpart also held this distinction. Interesting. It makes it almost more surprising that uh, Ford's vice president, uh, Rockefeller, uh, dissed Tolbert. But anyways, Tolbert's personal life left little to admire. One U.S. official, Edward Perkins, took a very harsh view of the president. When Perkins met the Liberian president and first lady, he said, quote, she was recovering from the effects of a beating he had given her. Tolbert was a Baptist minister who, aside from viewing himself as a reformer, had passed a law lowering the age of consent to 12. He was, quote, nothing short of a psychopath, Perkins said. Okay, I... I don't, I haven't seen that ever reported anywhere else about the age of consent law, but I take slight umbrage with this definition that, oh, he was just a, he's just a psychopath. <laughs> I mean, compared to the people that would follow Tolbert, I don't think that is necessarily, I could be wrong to some degree, but I feel uh, that's a little disingenuous coming from U.S. official Edward Perkins. Anyways, in the late 70s, as Tolbert settled into power, the future of the nation could be seen in the diaspora. This superclass of Liberians included both the offspring of the traditional elite and a new generation of indigenous students and professionals drawn to universities and institutions in the U.S. Western education, along with the cultural literacy and connections that came with living abroad, was nearly as beneficial as familial connections and ethnic background. The diaspora organized and spoke with an, at times, unified voice that demanded the attention of leaders in Monrovia. 
It was easy to ignore the complaints of university students and marginalized activists in Liberia, but less so among this new class of Liberians, who had a broader reach in the political and business communities outside of West Africa. For young, educated, indigenous Liberians, the barriers to leadership positions in business and government, while still very real, appeared to be weakening. This was how the future looked for Liberia in the mid-70s. Charles Taylor was just one face in the crowd of young Liberians coming up in the diaspora. He belonged to both worlds, the traditional Americos, who had inherited privilege and position, and the indigenous, who clamored for mobility in the new Liberia. His familial connections and experience all but guaranteed him a comfortable ministerial position if he chose to return to Liberia with an MBA. But then, in 1979, we have the aforementioned Rice Riots, instigated by the Progressive Alliance of Liberia, PAL, and maybe the U.S. government. Um, it's interesting, the way Dwyer describes some of the situation, um, given the WikiLeaks cables that we read in Demon Forces 2, is kind of an example of kind of like missing the forest for the trees a little bit, but it is still interesting information. He talks about while <clears throat> during and after the horrible, you know, uh, riots broke out. The President Tolbert, sitting a little more than a mile away in the executive mansion, had underestimated the degree of popular anger. His government had little experience or facility to deal with unrest, particularly in the capital. His impulse was to seek counsel, not from his military leaders, but from the chief of the military mission at the U.S. Embassy, Colonel Robert Gosney. Gosney, a former offensive guard for Texas A&M University with a brawny, no-nonsense attitude, had earned the Distinguished Flying Cross while serving as a U.S. Army helicopter pilot in Vietnam. He'd been in the country just a few months, working with the armed forces of Liberia, but had already made his presence known as a capable trainer. He'd learned that the military leadership was, quote, crooked as snakes. I mean, that might be a reference to the... Uh, loyal general that Gosney tried to shitcoat uh, as accepting a bribe from an American company to get Tolbert to fire him. But anyways, when he sat down with President Tolbert and chiefs of staffs that day, it became apparent that the thrust of that meeting was that they wanted me to take control of the army. Gosney mobilized two battalions at Barclay Training Center, but then there was, of course, this incident where a contingent of security forces with live ammo fired into the crowd, roughly 40 people, uh, were killed, and then the riots were made much worse. Interestingly, he notes that, uh, you know, despite 40 people being killed by troops firing into the crowd, which some people thought was a CIA provocation to tarnish the Tolbert administration, uh, when Dwyer asked him later, he said he didn't recall any of the shooting deaths from the riots, but he understood the implications of the rioting and violence that followed. The rising hostility was palpable, not only among the Liberian people, but also within the military, where inequalities angered many. If you don't get a hold of generals who are robbing their soldiers of their pay, there was going to be a coup, Gosney recalled saying, because he was probably the one planning the coup. But anyways, the violence in Monrovia, known as the Rice Riots, was felt almost immediately in Liberian communities throughout the East Coast. The uneasy inertia of Liberian politics had been forever altered. Taylor and his friends in the U.S. were appalled by Tolbert's reaction and his decision to call in troops, especially the contingent from Guinea. The crisis provided Taylor with an unprecedented opportunity, a path to power separate from the political establishment in Liberia. 
At a ULAA board meeting soon after the Rice Riots, members of the group proposed purchasing weapons to send the opposition back in Liberia. This is where it starts to get a little weird. One member met with a contact in Washington, D.C. to arrange the purchase of several handguns. The plan dramatically underestimated the firepower that would be required of a successful armed insurrection. The conventional force that had just used automatic rifles on a crowd of unarmed protesters was American-trained and supplied. The ignorance, however, didn't matter as the contact was, in fact, an FBI informer. At a meeting in Washington months after the Rice Riots, FBI agents arrested the Liberian weapons buyer. In the next days that followed, arrests continued through the ULAA's ranks, including Taylor, who was apprehended a short time later in Boston. He would be brought before a grand jury in Washington, D.C., but avoided prosecution. For Taylor, the episode offered an abbreviated lesson. Quote, bad thinking, but that was the time. So already interesting. He gets caught in an FBI weapon sting and then gets his uh, charges dropped. Just interesting to note. I don't know if that would have been uh, some kind of avenue uh, to become an informant or operator oneself. But anyways, after the FBI sting, members of ULAA continued a campaign of agitation against Tolbert. Taylor led a small group of ULAA activists, mostly students and young professionals, to the Liberian consulate in New York. The group took over the consulate's suite of fourth-floor offices at 822nd Avenue and demanded that Tolbert resign. Taylor knew better than to think the president would be pressured by a disorganized sit-in across the Atlantic, but the group hoped to have their voices heard in Monrovia. Winston Tubman, a nephew of former President William Tubman and head of the consulate, showed up to remove the protesters. Without hostility, he addressed Taylor, who appeared to be leading the group. Gentlemen, he said, the events at home have shocked us all. I hear that there were many deaths. Trying to connect with the protesters, Tubman mentioned that he was uncertain whether a friend of his had been injured in the violence. Screw your friend, Taylor screamed. Our country is being destroyed by killers, and here you are, talking about your friend. Tubman was stunned. If the men refused to leave, he warned them, they would be arrested. Taylor challenged him to do so. Tubman didn't want to see the men arrested, but there was little he could do. Exasperated, he left the room to confer with Monrovia. Soon afterward, officers from the NYPD walked into the consulate and arrested Taylor and five of his followers. Even after two arrests, Taylor and the ULAA continued to press their case against Tolbert. In September 1979, the president, who was then chairperson of the OAU, Organization of African Unity, traveled to the United Nations to address the General Assembly. Taylor again drove down to New York, having organized a group to protest on First Avenue outside the UN building while several members of the ULAA entered the Assembly Hall. As Tolbert stepped up to the podium to speak, the young Liberians began shouting down their president. Rather than ignore the protesters, he engaged them. He arranged to meet Taylor and several other ULAA leaders at the Liberian Embassy in Washington. President Tolbert did not have to meet with members of the ULAA. They represented a peripheral, dislocated component of his growing political opposition. The fact that many had received education and work experience in the U.S. set them apart within Liberian society, but their influence on domestic politics remained questionable. At the meeting, Taylor aired the group's grievances. The government's lack of reform and its failure to punish the Minister of Justice and Police Director for the killings of civilians during the Rice Riots. I am doing the best that I can to bring about change, Tolbert said. It is slow, but I want change. 
Then he chose to hold out a laurel to them. Look, he said, some of you have been in America very long and may not have all the details of what's going on in Liberia, so I now extend an invitation to you, Mr. Chairman, and a delegation to come and visit Liberia and tour the country where we think you would be better informed as to what is happening on the ground. Taylor had not been home since he'd arrived in the United States seven years earlier. An invitation from the president conferred upon him and the other ULAA leaders what he considered, quote, almost rock star status, but it also came with some risk. Quote, it did cross our minds that we could, even if not get killed, have gotten locked up like the other guys that were already in jail, he later recalled. I think he's referring to Gabriel Bacchus Matthews, Togba Tipute, who were in jail at the time. But Taylor also read an implicit challenge in the president's offer, which he found impossible to resist. It is good and well to sit in the U.S. and demonstrate on the streets where at most the police will arrest you, take you in, book you, and let you go, he said. But now when it comes to the time to, what we say literally in Liberia, to show your juice and you run away, I mean, we just couldn't do that. He and the others immediately accepted. So Charles Taylor ends up traveling back to Liberia on President Tolbert's invitation, which means that he's there in April 1980 when Tolbert is murdered. But before we go any further, there's one more aspect of his time in the United States that needs to be mentioned because it's going to be very relevant in later chapters. In 1976, just as he's getting started with his political activist career, Charles Taylor meets a girl. The two had met more than a year earlier in a chance encounter on a day when Taylor had gone to visit a cousin in Dorchester, a short drive from his apartment in South Boston. As he stepped into the lobby of his cousin's apartment building, he passed a striking woman just a year or two out of high school he stopped and asked for her number. Her name was Bernice, although she also went by Yolanda. She was a Trinidadian American with a wide smile and fair skin inherited from her white grandfather. She had been born in New York City to immigrants from Trinidad, but had grown up in the West Indian community in Boston. I don't give my number, she later recalled telling him, but she didn't immediately dismiss him. She had noticed the dapper young African man even before he approached her. Soon after, Bernice and Charles began dating. His pedigree set him apart from other young men in her heavily Caribbean neighborhood. He was an African, the son of a prominent family, and on a career path in government. When the two began to spend time together, she discovered that Taylor could also be shy and intelligent. Bernice had little interest in the diaspora activism that preoccupied her boyfriend outside work and school. His political life wasn't a problem in their burgeoning relationship. Indeed, despite their different backgrounds, the two had much in common. Both had children from previous relationships. Taylor's child and her mother lived in Liberia, and Emmanuel's daughter, Maisha, lived with her. Both were driven. Taylor's interest in playing a larger role in the politics of his homeland was matched by Emmanuel's desire to leave the ranks of the immigrant working class and provide a life of relative comfort for Maisha. The couple soon moved into a Queen Anne shingle department building on Monadnock Street in the Upham's Corner section of Dorchester. Taylor saw the arrangement as, quote, French cohabitation, but for Emmanuel, who was the sole breadwinner while her boyfriend remained in school, the relationship took on all the features of a common-law marriage, including, nearly a year after they met, a child. 
On that February morning, 1977, Charles Chucky Taylor was born between several worlds. Boston was almost incidental to the family history. It was simply where his parents' lives collided. Chucky's mother's family had migrated to Boston decades earlier to find work, while his father had sought his education there. Underlying the family's history were other, more significant migrations. On Taylor's side, there were the journeys back and forth across the Atlantic, into bondage, and back to freedom in Liberia. On Emmanuel's side, there was the voyage from Trinidad, a polyglot island in the Caribbean, once believed to be the mystical El Dorado, that had been settled in part by African slaves brought into work on the sugar plantations. These two worlds shared cultural and spiritual links. Christianity, particularly the Baptist church, was the dominant faith in both cultures, but traditional beliefs also held significant sway. In Liberia, the secret belief systems of the bush, Poro and Sande, where the natural world of the forest was imbued with spiritual powers, were still part of Christian men and women's initiation into adulthood. Trinidad, for its part, had the spiritual practice of Obeya, a type of folk magic believed to have migrated from Africa's Gold Coast, or what is now Ghana, in the 17th century. In Liberia, the outward face of Poro is the bush devil, a stilted figure wearing a mask of shells. A similar figure can be seen in Trinidad, the Mako Jumbi, a figure who walks on stilts, wears a mask, and represents a link to Obeya. The Jumbi, whose name means ghost, is associated with the spirit of a child who died before baptism and is cursed to eternally roam the earth. Chucky was the firstborn son to both Taylor and Emmanuel. In Liberia, that role came with the inherent privileges and responsibilities of tribal societies. Even among Christian Americo-Liberians, it carried symbolic importance within a family. In Trinidad, meanwhile, if the father of a child committed any wrongs during his life, his first son would be born with, quote, a light on him, meaning he would bear a curse for his lifetime. Juggling these diverse influences, the family settled into life in Dorchester. Taylor worked jobs at Sears and Mutual of Omaha, but Emmanuel was the more consistent breadwinner. She recalled Chucky as, quote, the happiest baby while the family lived together under the same roof. But the truth was that Taylor did not have the time to be a father. Around the child's first birthday, he returned home one day to see his son drinking from a baby bottle. As Emmanuel would recall, Taylor plucked the bottle from his son's hand and tossed it out the window, declaring, you're too grown for bottles. More important, the politics of his homeland were changing rapidly, and he longed to be involved. Taylor's political ambitions did not include a role for his American family. As he plied the East Coast, immersing himself in expatriate politics, he became involved with another woman, Enid Tupi-Songbi, a younger Liberian who was also the niece of a popular army officer, Thomas Kuyunkpa. As Tupi later told a journalist, Taylor courted her over eight months after they met at a party years earlier in 1979, when Taylor was 27 and she was just 16. By 1979, the relationship had developed into more than a liaison. There was nothing remarkable about Taylor's infidelity to Bernice. They were not married. An ambitious Liberian man had no clear political advantage in being tied to a Trinidadian American woman. Taylor, according to Bernice, did offer to take the family back to Liberia with him, but she didn't even entertain the idea. Her view of Africa was gleaned from television documentaries, a world of thatched hut villages and women in straw skirts. We weren't educated enough to know that Africa wasn't backward, she said. 
She had an altogether different idea of how she wanted to raise Chucky, educating him at a private school, living near his cousins and grandparents. Why would I leave here? She asked. Soon afterward, Charles Taylor disappeared from her and her child's life. He married Tupi, a fortuitous alliance for Taylor because of her familial connections. Bernice, when asked about the marriage two decades later, refused to acknowledge it. She recounted their separation in March 1980 as her own decision, one that had left her a single mother caring for two children. But he says parenthetically, the split may not have been as stark as Bernice describes. Other family members have snapshots that appear to show Chucky with his stepmother and stepsister in Liberia in 1982. So Charles Taylor leaves in March 1980, and a month after he gets to Liberia, William Tolbert, the last of a line of America Liberian presidents, is murdered in his bedclothes by a handful of non-commissioned officers from the armed forces of Liberia, and perhaps a few white hands as well. Actually, it's worth reading the way Dwyer describes the coup in 1980, because he's actually one of the only authors that interviewed Colonel Robert Gosney, who now I think died sometime in the last five years, but he interviewed him while he was still alive and was actually his only on-the-ground American source for this uh, story. So I, I think kind of the way that, uh, given everything we've gone over about the coup, uh, it's interesting how it's characterized in this passage here. So he says, the events surrounding Tolbert's murder are mysterious. What is known is that on the night of April 12th, the president opted to sleep at the executive mansion rather than at his personal residence outside the city. At some point in the middle of the night, soldiers burst into the room, surprising him and his wife, Victoria. The first lady later described the scene in her memoir, lifted up, quote, then six virtually naked and horrifyingly masked men rushed by me. Their bodies were painted for war in tribal fashion, like the warriors of Cape Palmas during Liberia's tribal wars. Only jagged and weathered scraps of fabric hung securely about their loins. I could see that their gruesome masks, designed to terrify, disguise, and intimidate, were painted on. I didn't recognize any of these men. Suddenly, a deafening explosion blasted our ears. One of them had shot President Tolbert. He sank to the chair, his walking stick dropped to the floor, and I knew he was dead. The men spared the president's wife, who belonged to the indigenous Vi tribe. Now, interesting, maybe I'll put in right now the testimony of former government minister Chea Chipu, who was part of the PRC government, but also said he had a conversation with uh, Victoria Tolbert, where she talked about a white hand, because Dwyer does not mention the white hand part, which I think mm, probably should <laughs> put that in there. But so this is what he said. He goes on to say. According to the lone surviving American embassy official present in Monrovia, the killing of the president was no cathartic purgation of tribal hatred. It was little more than a drunken lark undertaken by a handful of underpaid and aggrieved soldiers. Within hours of the president's murder, Colonel Robert Gosney again appeared on scene at the executive mansion. There he found members of the junta not celebrating their victory, but disoriented and terrified, skulking in a pagoda outside the mansion. It was a dangerous situation. The capital threatened to spin out of control without a clear line of authority. Is there anyone there that could run the government? His boss, the charge d'affaires, radioed him. I reckon there is, the colonel responded. Gosney was familiar with some of the men from training they had received from the U.S. Special Forces weeks before the coup. By his own account, Gosney lined up the men and appointed them roles in the junta according to their rank. 
His account can't be independently verified, the others present are deceased, but it is known that two men within this group, Master Sergeant Samuel K. Doe and Sergeant Thomas Kwiangpa, emerged as the most powerful figures in Liberia. Each would shape Taylor's development as a political force. So, I mean, given everything we just covered, <laughs> I mean, Dwyer says that, you know, his account can't be independently verified, but I feel like I can independently debunk it because it contradicts everybody else's account of what happened. We already played the audio of the individual that was at the Hotel Africa, and he saw the white military advisors and the PRC members like getting drunk and celebrating at the hotel after the coup was committed. Whereas Gosney says, oh, they were terrified, they were disoriented, and, you know, they were just, they were just on a drunken lark. Okay, Colonel. So, yeah, nothing about the white hand. It takes Gosney at his word. It also doesn't kind of explicitly, you know, mention that he was the one overseeing the U.S. military training and that Doe, he already had a very close relationship with Doe, and Doe used to run around calling him the chief and loved him. So, you know, it, it's just, like, it's a little credulous, I feel like, to um, listen to somebody like that. Uh, it's kind of minimizing what really happened here. Because I think, as we talk about, you know, as, as we open this episode, listening to uh, Charles Taylor explaining kind of why he thought William Tolbert was killed... I don't think he thought it was a drunken lark. The other thing I'll mention, uh, maybe I'll try to find audio, or I forget which book mentions it, but uh, several of them do. It might actually be Lester Hyman, who we'll get to later. But what actually seems to have happened is, uh, as we referenced before, some of the Moja activists uh, started to build a relationship with like this night school with lower-level army uh officers, like non-commissioned army officers, many of whom were indigenous and kind of uh, in the final days of Tolbert's administration, trying to kind of recruit them to sort of be the coup instrument. But at at some point right before the coup, now, I think this aspect of a, a drunken and impulsive drunken lark, there may be a grain of truth to it, but I feel like all these motherfuckers are twisting it, is that somebody came to them and they said that there were a number of, I guess, military officers and political activists that had been in jail since the Rice Riots. Somebody came to them and they were, because this is also, I think, April 13th. So this is just a couple days before the one-year anniversary of the Rice Riots. And they said, we found out information that Tolbert is going to execute all of these people on the one-year anniversary of the Rice Riots to send a message because he's such a psychopath and he's so evil. And so these guys who by this point had sort of established uh, comradely relations with a lot of these activists kind of uh, decided now's the time we have to do it. And God knows what they were being fed by kind of U.S. military people like Gosney or U.S. embassy officials or people that were also secretly CIA assets and things like that. But, you know, if we want to assume that maybe the actual killers of Tolbert were not fully read in on the plot, but were sort of used as pawns, the idea that kind of psyoping these guys into saying, hey, they're about to kill all our friends, like we got to do something right now, and that being sort of the trigger for the coup, then you can step back and be like, well, they were just drunk and they were impulsive and 
and Dwyer does not mention that story, which I think, again, uh, other authors have, have brought up and people definitely have mentioned it in the Truth and Reconciliation testimonies that somebody came to them and told them they're about to murder all your buddies and uh, you got to go and stop Tolbert. He's out of control. And that's also interesting because, as we'll see at the very end of this episode, that would be a tactic that I think was possibly recycled and used against other African leaders who the U.S. wanted to target. But more on that later. So jumping ahead in the book here, during the coup, Taylor was staying at the Holiday Inn near the executive mansion in downtown Monrovia as a guest of the deposed president because he, as we said, was a part of a delegation of diaspora activists. But, you know, what's worth noting is uh, as somebody who was half Americo-Liberian and half from a tribal background and somebody who was there as a guest of William Tolbert, he potentially could have been targeted for being killed, for maybe being one of those 13 that was killed on the beach. But instead of that, the soldiers came to him at the Holiday Inn and told him that he'd been summoned by members of the junta just hours after Tolbert died for help in kickstarting the revolutionary government. So the first meeting on the morning following the coup made clear the reversal of the power structure in Liberia, and Taylor learned where he fit in. He recounted how soldiers had arrived at his hotel and loaded him into a jeep, making clear he was not a prisoner, but a potential collaborator with the junta. When he arrived at the spare military office at the Barclay Training Center, Taylor noticed several men lying on the floor, their arms bound behind them, including several senior government ministers and the Speaker of Liberia's legislature. Behind the desk sat Thomas Kuyangpa, a 22-year-old army officer. Even though he was a relative of Tupi's, his new wife, the men had never met, according to Taylor. Oh, Taylor, Kuyangpa said. Sit down, let's work. Do you remember us? Taylor did not. Kuyangpa recounted an incident from a trip to Nimba County that Taylor had taken with President Tolbert several days before the coup. When Taylor had returned to Liberia at the president's invitation in March 1980, he had pressed Tolbert to visit imprisoned activists. The president demurred, instead asking the young activist to accompany the presidential delegation on a tour to the interior to a village called Batuo in Nimba County, near the border with the Ivory Coast. By coincidence or design, Taylor would launch his revolution from there nearly a decade later. Taylor had followed along on the junket, playing the critic to the president. Tolbert understood that Liberian society demanded reform. What he failed to identify was the source of the most potent discontent. It wasn't progressive leaders like Taylor, but rather Tolbert's own military. The president wasn't alone in this miscalculation. Taylor, too, had failed to anticipate that the military would play the pivotal role in restructuring Liberia society. While it may not have been clear from within Liberia's political culture, it was hardly surprising. West Africa had experienced a series of military coups beginning in 1963 with the killing of Togo's president, Silvanus Olympio, outside the U.S. Embassy in Lome and leading up to the military takeover of Ghana in 1979. Even under the president's wing, during the weeks before the coup, Taylor held to his activist instincts. In one incident on the tour of Nimba County, he witnessed a government minister insulting a local legislator. Rather than let the incident pass as a fact of life in Liberia's provincial society, he called the minister to task, castigating him for patronizing the legislator within his own community. It was a minor incident that Taylor had forgotten, but it provided the basis for the working relationship between a junior bureaucrat and the military officer. The soldiers providing security for the delegation had looked on quietly, taking note of this young activist. 
Now as Taylor settled into Kwiangpa's office at Barclay Training Center, the soldiers reminded him of a press conference Taylor had later held criticizing the president's party. We know that you have come and you want to be fair. This is why we've called you down to work, a soldier told him. The PRC became the center of power in the new Liberia, making decisions out of public view and ruling by decree. So he does note that, you know, ideology, he, he says ideology was a tertiary concern within the PRC, particularly since there were so few civilians in leadership positions. Some members had Marxist socialist leanings, like Thomas Wissien, while others, like Taylor, were market-oriented. But predominantly, the cabinet members were military officers. He notes that Taylor's admission to this whole group was remarkable and that he was the only member with Americo-Liberian lineage among a group dominated by members of the Kron, Gio, and other tribes. He was put in charge of the General Services Agency, GSA, which became his fiefdom. GSA was the procurement arm of the Liberian government. His position as its head made even government ministers beholden to him. The GSA job, quote, was a very, very powerful position, Taylor recalled. He brought in Blamo Nelson as a deputy, an old friend from his student days in the U.S., whom Taylor recalled as a natural-born bureaucrat, quote, a man who really loves paper. Taylor quickly moved to centralize all government purchasing decisions within the GSA rather than within each individual ministry, a system he borrowed from the American bureaucratic model. The policy change came with an inherent benefit, he said, quote, I then had the authority to make certain decisions regarding supplies that ministries received. With this new authority came a legion of enemies. Taylor found government vehicles to be a particularly controversial issue. He took a hard line regarding cabinet ministers' use of these vehicles for personal purposes. The decision, while sound, was politically risky, particularly within the ethnic context of the coup. Quote, Here's this Congo man, who's the head of the GSA, who does not want us to gain some status, he recalled ministers griping. So Dwyer writes then about Samuel Doe's background, which has some interesting stuff in it, that Doe was young, just 30, educated only through 11th grade, and coming from the Kron tribe. He hailed from Tuzon, a village in Liberia's Grand Gaudet County, along the southeastern border with Ivory Coast. Though he was from a relatively remote corner of the country, American influences reached him from an early age. His village benefited from a stream of Peace Corps volunteers from the early 1970s, and by the time Doe joined the armed forces of Liberia in 1969, the military was an American-style force supplied, trained, and in part funded by American taxpayers. So yeah, kind of explains maybe his love of the U.S., his love of Colonel Robert Gosney and Ronald Reagan, etc., now, this is interesting. As president, Doe morphed from a suggestible and illiterate soldier into a paranoid, superstitious, and insular despot. He relied on two sources of power in arguably equal parts, the Reagan administration and tribal magic, or juju. Among his earliest orders of business as the first indigenous Liberian head of state was the public execution of 13 largely Americo-Liberian government ministers charged with treason, which, by the way, Charles Taylor was invited to and, and watched happen, which he talked about during his war crimes trial, uh, left a deep impression on him. And according to him, he tried to stop. He tried to plead with uh, Thomas Kwiangpa uh, to say, you can't do this. You can't you know, uh, wipe out the entire leadership and like the ruling class and just kill them all. But, you know, they did. But yeah, you know, he mentions there that Doe relied in equal parts on the Reagan administration 
and tribal magic or juju. Now, there are a lot of things that have been said in regards to Samuel Doe's magical practices. There's a lot written about it in The Mask of Anarchy. In super lawyer Lester Hyman's book, he actually notes, I was trying to find the source earlier, but I found it. He said that a VOA reporter, so grain of salt, recounted that indeed Samuel Doe, after he killed William Tolbert, removed his heart and his liver and left ritualistic teeth marks on both as part of a ritual. So he really believed in this shit and even more so as the 80s went on. So just to give a little example of that, he says for Taylor, the beach executions were an object lesson in the political stakes in the new Liberia. The dark side of tribal ascendancy had shown its ugly face. This tribal anger was directed not only outward to the settlers, but also inward at other tribes competing for position in the new government. The Kron Junta leadership's response to threats, or perceived threats, took on tribal and religious aspects. In one instance, Doe's men singled out a community that they believed to be sympathetic to the former regime. They chose to punish the leader of the tribal sect society, Azo, by forcing him to eat his own ear, akin to brutalizing a cardinal as an insult to the Catholic Church. The insult radiated throughout the country's secret societies, disrupting the perennial cycle of bush schools that the societies ran to initiate youth into adulthood within tribal communities. For young boys and girls, these schools constituted a crucial hinge point between childhood and adult life. The children were spirited away to locations in the forest for a month to a year, where they underwent a secret education into their roles as men and women within their culture. While the Americo governments had subjugated indigenous peoples, the Doe regime's targeting of traditional practices of rival tribes marked a new rift in the society. A State Department report divined the real danger, quote, Though the various tribes now feel the animosities toward their neighbors, which have been suppressed for the last 158 years, there is no evidence of any group or grouping organizing to overthrow the present Kron Crew coalition. However, the alienation is there. It may not mean anything, but it could be a straw in the wind for the future. So then, just eight months after the coup, a mysterious group, the Committee for a Free and United Liberia, circulated a six-page letter around the capital. In almost Swiftian rhetoric, it accused the government of graft, corruption, and even drug trafficking, specifically calling out Doe's greed for the construction of a mansion in his home county. Fellow citizens, the letter read, you can plainly see this has now become a revolution of personal enrichment and Kron tribal dominance with everybody in the PRC together with certain members of government doing everything possible to get more and more. The letter concluded, the real enemies of the revolution are those PRC rogues. While the author of the letter was never identified, Doe's government, whether justified or not, saw Taylor's hand in it. The two had had a fractious relationship up to that point, with Taylor unafraid to confront Doe's appointees. The Minister of Justice ordered Taylor's arrest on March 11, 1981. Soon afterward, soldiers arrived at his office, stripped him to his underwear, and loaded him into a jeep. Like the ministers who had been detained in the hours after the coup, he was driven to Barclay Training Center and jailed, not far from where he had been first asked to join the coup government a year earlier. After several harrowing hours, Taylor's patron, Thomas Kuyangpa, demanded his friend's release. This incident marked the first time the U.S. Embassy reported on Charles Taylor to Washington, noting, quote, Regarding the problems of political prisoners and due legal process in Liberia, 
Kuyangpa called for fair treatment for anyone who had committed a crime against the state and said anyone arrested without due process of law must be released. Comment. Kuyangpa followed his words with actions that same night. Justice Minister Chia Chipu summarily ordered the arrest of General Services Agency Director Charles Taylor for, quote, sedition, based on Taylor's possession of three mimeograph letters from the Committee for a Free in United Liberia. Kuyangpa maintained he personally saw to Taylor's release. Hmm. Interesting. So, while Taylor and Kuyangpa had forged an alliance, they could not have been more different. Kuyangpa remained something of a national hero for his role in the coup. He was a jocular military officer and proud son of Nimba County, deep in Liberia's forest frontier. Furthermore, he had the support of the U.S. government. One diplomat noted shortly after the coup that, quote, his brigadier's star shines the brightest of all in the current AFL galaxy. As an army officer who enjoyed popularity among both his own soldiers and American officials, Kuyangpa was on an obvious collision course with the increasingly paranoid Doe. It was also clear that Taylor's mixed heritage was viewed as a liability within the insular government, as was his willingness to use his relatively small government office to exert power. While Taylor was able to return to service in the government, Doe had effectively demoted him. After several public clashes with the president, both Kuyangpa and the young bureaucrat fled to the United States in the spring of 1983, going their separate ways. Kuyangpa moved quickly to galvanize fighters to stage a raid on Liberian territory. So yes, now we, we've converged the narrative threads of Kuyangpa and Taylor. They both flee around the same time, fearing that Doe might do to them what he did to people like Major Jarbo, Thomas Waisien, etc. But um, <laughs> we're about to get a big old... Uh, Big ol' sus alert here from one of our recurring SJ characters, so strap in tight. Dwyer goes on. Taylor was keenly aware of his tenuous position when he arrived back in the U.S. He was the guest of a nation that actively supported a leader who sought his arrest. It was a matter of whether the U.S. would take the initiative to do something about it. So here's a big one right here. Knowing that Doe would likely track him to the United States, Taylor hired a lawyer to help him. Who else? Ramsey Clark. Clark, a plain-spoken Texan whose father had sat in the Supreme Court for 18 years, served as Attorney General in the Johnson administration from 1967 to 1969. His career afterward was characterized by the clients he took on, including Slobodan Milosevic, Saddam Hussein, Leonard Peltier, and David Koresh, and also hobnobbing with a uh, Phil Oaks slash John Train in the early 70s. A uh, very interesting uh, guy, uh, this Ramsey Clark. So Clark recalled Taylor's arrival at his office at 113 University Place in New York's Greenwich Village. He appeared dressed in a business suit and looking like any number of African students and immigrants whom Clark had represented in the past. When the two sat down, Taylor explained his situation, his role in the government, and why he sought counsel. He thought he was going to have a problem with the government of Liberia, Clark said. He had come to oppose Samuel K. Doe and was concerned about reprisals. Taylor hadn't been charged with any crime at that time, but after he fled, Liberian officials discovered nearly $1 million missing from GSA coffers. Before leaving Liberia, Taylor had wired funds to several accounts in New York in what appeared to be legitimate purchases of spare parts from a New Jersey-based company, International Earth Moving Equipment. 
The parts were never delivered, and government auditors grew suspicious that Taylor had orchestrated the scheme to embezzle funds. Before leaving Clark's office, Taylor left a retainer. Clark didn't recall the exact amount, but said it, quote, couldn't be more than $5,000. Huh, okay. So the charges eventually caught up to Taylor in May 1984. He had been staying at the apartment of one of his former roommates in Somerville, Massachusetts, not far from the apartment he had once shared with Bernice and Chucky. Federal marshals bearing an order to extradite him to Liberia surprised him there, placed him into custody, and brought him to Plymouth to be jailed. The Liberian government wanted to prosecute him for the bogus transaction involving the equipment. The assistant U.S. attorney who was handed the case, Richard G. Stearns, couldn't muster FBI resources to look into it, so he traveled down to New York himself to pour over the bank statements. Taylor had made little effort to hide the fraud. When Stearns spoke to his Liberian counterparts, the extradition request did not appear to be political. In fact, Doe's fear was that Taylor was using the pilfered money to bankroll the opposition. Honestly, not, not an unreasonable fear to have, as we'll see. It goes on. Taylor could do little to prevent his extradition, other than claim that he would be harmed upon returning to Liberia. When he asked Clark to represent him, he warned that Doe wanted to throw him, quote, into a crocodile stream. At a succession of hearings, Taylor and the U.S. government made their respective cases. The government had received assurances from the Liberians that Taylor would receive a fair trial following his extradition, Assistant U.S. Attorney Stearns recalled, though he acknowledged that, quote, there was concern at the time that the Doe regime didn't have the most savory of reputations. Taylor had real reason to fear for his life should he lose the extradition battle. Doe had ordered the execution of colleagues who had been much closer to him than Taylor ever was, though those men had been accused of plotting to overthrow him. Clark put documents into evidence and presented witnesses to build the case against extradition, but Stern said only that some of the testimony was, quote, pretty weird. I'm not sure what he means by that, but anyways. The gravity of the decision before the court can easily be perceived in hindsight but there was little indication of what was on the line during the proceedings. For a very young guy, Stearns recalled, Taylor was in a position of prominence, and he obviously embezzled huge amounts of money, which he wasn't spending freely, so he was obviously banking something. He was reasonably educated and polished in his own way, but I did not honestly see him at that time as what he became, which was bloodthirsty. Even in his growing paranoia, Doe may have had a lucid sense of the potential threat Taylor posed. His push to extradite Taylor came at a moment when the specter of a coup was becoming more real. The ranks of disaffected government officials were growing, and with them came rumors of hostile governments that were willing to provide sanctuary to members of the Liberian opposition, including Libya, Cuba, Ethiopia, and the USSR. The most tangible threat was in the United States where Thomas Kuyangpa had found haven before launching the first significant raid into Liberian territory during Doe's regime in November 1983. Doe may have known well that Taylor and Kuyangpa were in contact in the U.S. and that both were plotting a return to Liberia with the shared goal of achieving a Liberia without Samuel Doe.
rumors and counter rumors. I was in the uh, Maryland area and there were rumors that General Kuomba was in some uh, seminary or somewhere studying the Bible. He wanted to become a religious person. And after that, there were other rumors that some people, some powerful invisible hands were trying to tell him that he got to come back and liberate his people. And there were, pla there were rumors that they were making plans to come back to do that. It was during that time that some people had a meeting in New Jersey, in the United States of America, to draw up a plan to bring down the Doe's government. I attended that program as the Minister Counselor for Public Affairs because I felt it was my professional duty to go to all of these programs, recall them, and documents from them and inform the government because that was the public affairs supposed to do. They had the NSA to do their duty, I was there to do my duty. And I must tell you that I did not send lies to the government on anybody and that is why I have called on the public to please confront me now before this TRC period is over with all the mess that I did. All the nonsense I did in government, bring it forward, let's discuss it. I will not get vexed with you, I will not cuss you out, I will not sue you, I will just explain to you. When I explain to you, you will get sorry for yourself. So, um, I went to that program. That program was attended by Liberians and some Lebanese. Liberians and some Lebanese, they were at that program. And at that program was Dr. Patrick Sayon, former president of the University of Liberia, Dr. Mary Antoinette Brown Sherman, former president of the University of Liberia, and other people in New Jersey, United States of America. Patrick Sayon and Mary Antoinette Brown made statements. And as I told you yesterday, I tried to, I, I don't know much, I went to the Columbia School of Broadcasting. I don't know much, but I tried to be a, a good journalist, I tried. And a good journalist, I want to tell the younger people, is one who keeps his notes. A journal is a notebook or a compilation of sheets, a journal. Or you can even keep it on uh, animal skin, once you keep it, it's a journal. You do not go and cover, you do not go and cover the inauguration of the president in 2006, January 16. And if I ask you for your notes today, you can't find it because some grumpy woman has already wrapped grumpies in it. I want to send this note forward to the commissioner so they can look at it and see the age of the paper so they can know I'm not making things up. When I read it, I will send it to you. It's dated November 29, 1986. These are my notes from New Jersey when they were having the program to say they wanted to come and unseat the Doe government. November 29, 1986. Boyer keeps old papers. 
Well, I'm not fool for the rule to come see, to just to get discouraged and go back. All papers are all you'll find. Dr. Sian said, there is a lack of a sense of urgency among Liberians. There is a lack of a sense of urgency among Liberians. He said that he had a heavy burden of individual guilt for what had happened to Liberia. Because they agitated against the Toro government and they thought something better was coming and it became worse. And he had a heavy burden of individual guilt. He went on to say, we have run out of time. We have borrowed time and that borrowed time has ran out. Unless we act now, people would laugh at us. Sherman said, in 98, Dr. Sherman was called the mother. He, he said, he was, was saying, in 1980, Dr. Mary Adelaide Brown Sherman was called the mother of the revolution. So that revolution has not died. It has not been realized yet. There is social injustice. There is no progress. Let me look at it first. See why I read it second. Then we turn on to page two. Dr. Sherman. Dr. Sherman said the hands of time has been turned back in Liberia for almost six years. She said. Threatened the national fabric and led to decay. She said, People's hope for a new day has been dashed. She said, People were, were led to believe that the problems were based on ethnicity and tribalism. And when the tribal people took over, they would be solved. And she said, How wrong. What has happened to the cause of the people? She asked that question. What has happened to the cause of the people? What is the cause of the people anyway? She asked. People who today ride a train benefited from the scholarship of previous governments. That's what Dr. Sherman said. Please take this. People who benefited who riding the gravy train today were part of the government scholarship from long ago. Got PhD, DD, and all kind of Ds. She said unity should be our common national goal. Respect for the rule of law, freedom of speech and movement. Then she lamented that external influences have negatively affected Liberia.